And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host, Matt Watson. Today, I'm joined by Alex Polikov. He is the CEO and founder of Project Simple. We're going to be talking about how to manage software projects today, which are never never easy to do and most software projects you know kind of go off the rails take longer than you think all the problems so hopefully he can give us some uh great tips today about how to manage software projects um i know i could always use more tips i do want to remind everybody before we get started today's sponsor is full scale which is my company if you need to hire a software development team we've got over 300 employees working for dozens of other companies, building all sorts of technology, different tech stacks. You can check us out at fullscale.io. Alex, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. So I'm I'm hoping that you have like some magic button, you know, holy grail solution to make managing software easier. Is that is that what you're going to tell us today? <laughs> um, I would uh, hope to think so. However... <laughs> Uh, it would be a little too arrogant to assume that one size fits all is what works for everybody. It really depends on the size of the team that people have. Um, you know, managing projects is a uh, not easy, and the style and things you have to pay attention to really changes when you're a small team. Let's say, you know, three to ten people versus multiple teams, and then eventually an enterprise company with you know upwards of it's all totally different yeah so so there is no real panacea and everybody keeps on trying to find the right way of doing things um but it's not really about um you know um, coming up with anything new it's about wrapping it into things that we know Uh, a lot of it's the fundamentals right at the end of the day it's the fundamentals you have to be good at the fundamentals yeah, and, and and if you think about it, like the the leap of software engineering, um, you know, I, I I've been around uh, doing engineering for about twenty five years, so I can only think about the last twenty years. But in the last twenty years, the discipline really changed. You know, we had the waterfall, and then agile came around. We changed things, and this is where we, we, then it evolved into DevOps centric, metric based development. And then eventually the product management became its own discipline. So there's been a lot of evolution since. And, um, you know, I think, I think with all of those things combined, it's hard to see the entire picture, um, especially because people today, they learn things in pieces and there's so much information, it's hard to put it all together. Well, and it's hard to be a manager, you know, a, a VP of engineering, a CTO, any kind of engineering leader, and also be an expert at all of those things, but that's the job, right? As an engineering leader, you have to understand all those things, figure out how to manage a team, run a team, and accomplish all those things. Yeah, but what about the conflicts, right? So uh, there is a new product organization now, right? Previously, there were just business units, line of business, and they told you the business rules, and you had to implement software. 
So you really had only one person running the technology side. Now you have two. You have the product management side responsible for the product and the marketing, right? And anything, usability, metrics, data, et cetera. And then you have the engineering side, which is the discipline of building things. And now they're colliding because you have the so-called non-functional requirements, right? The architecture, the design, scalability things, conflicting with the product-centric vision. We need more features so we could sell, sell, sell. And, um, you know, the, the, the conflict of, uh, of these two roles is pretty significant. So I think that, that also adds to the chaos. It creates a healthy conflict, though, that a lot of people need, right? Because I feel like in a lot of companies, if the engineering team or the software development team is kind of in control of the roadmap, they like to work on like maintenance projects and technical debt and just rewriting stuff that works. And they just kind of get in this loop of like, non-productivity i feel like at big corporations where if you have the product team that is really driving more of what's being worked on i feel like in a lot of companies they're going to work on things that are more productive um yes and no (laughs) right so i guess the, the right answer here is it depends so some organizations they actually put product uh in the higher hierarchical position than uh engineering in other organizations, they put engineering above the product. And uh, in some of them, they're kind of like sister departments, if you will. They're peers, but, they're peers, but uh, they serve different purposes and, you know, they bump heads a lot. And the reason I, 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 I sometimes it's a healthy conflict, sometimes not so much. It's good to have different perspectives. However, it's important to realize when you're strong arming somebody uh, too hard. And yeah. um, this goes towards the whole culture, uh, managing the culture of the organization, because it's easy to push people into building features for sales and not giving engineering enough time to work on the technical. It takes a healthy balance. And vice versa. It's easy to get into refactoring because we want to build things and then stall the project for the next six months uh, while the market is losing the opportunity to bring something uh, to the to the end users and make money. So I think understanding those things is uh, is critical, and it's not easy. Anytime there's a partnership, that's that's what gets things very complicated. Well, I feel like a lot of engineering uh, teams struggle because of the the product part of it, though. Like they don't have the right requirements, they don't have the right like roadmap and direction of where we're trying to go. And I, spe- I especially feel like that's a problem in bigger companies because the product teams. I don't know how else to describe this. They sort of get neutered. They don't want to take any risk. They don't want to make any big changes. You know, so there's not a lot of innovation really going on because nobody wants to take the risk to make the big changes that need to be made. Like the company I sold 12 years ago, they haven't changed the product in 12 years because everybody is scared to change it. Like even the icons are the same. The buttons are the same. Like they're terrified to make the changes, you know, and I feel like so many corporations end up in that, like that problem. Um, that's a good point. I think the problem is that the generic title of a product manager is hard to identify, right? Um, if you think about product managers, sometimes, you know, anybody straight out of college that's being hired as, to manage a product doesn't have enough experience. Right. So it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be, uh, you know, it's going to be a person that's very susceptible to uh, stakeholders. 
right? Because they're going to take orders. They don't know any better. Yeah. Um, it's going to be somebody that really hasn't built stuff. So maybe book smart, but you know, they need the experience to get some strong, uh, legs, uh, you know, um, underneath of them. But, um, then you have the opposite picture. You have somebody that's been in the industry for, let's say 30 years and not aggressive enough to make changes. Right. So yeah. where do you find a balance of experienced yeah. people that can take the leadership they can they can make bets on the way the markets are evolving and actually be trusted to make those leaps and bounds. And, leader, and that's the hard that part. starts with the leadership at the top, right? The leadership at the top has to build that culture to say we're willing to make those changes and be that way and do that. Yes. And the best part about it is you can actually test things now. You know, if the software cycles are small, you don't need to wait a year right, to produce something that you can take to market. You can do the same thing. Um, Whenever I end up in a new environment, what I've actually done is I try to convince the leadership to have a startup within the enterprise. Right. That's what we need. Identify some budget. Get a small group of people. It does not need to be big. Just one team. One team to start making progress on something where you can place a bet. If you've burned three months worth of salaries for uh, people to actually uh, try to go after it to test something and it didn't play out, well, you're a big enterprise. You probably take that. That's not a big deal, right? And But if it does play out and if you're getting customers, early customers on board, and if you treat it as a startup, then you can start adding people and growing to it and allocating more budget. The problem that we have is that most of the time they try to use a traditional keep the lights on people to try to conquer new market opportunities. And that's where things are different personalities. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tell me, tell us more about your company, Project Simple. It's uh, projectsimple.ai. For those who are listening, check it out. It's a type of project management software, right? So tell us, tell us more about uh, your company and, and why you decided to start a company in the space and how you guys are different. Oh, God. Uh, good question. So <laughs> um, you can say I, you were crazy. That's a valid answer. Oh, well, that, that, that's uh, I kind of uh, everybody tells me I'm crazy because I went <laughs> into this space. When I tell people, hey, hey, I have a better way of doing agile project management. They ask me, like, why would you even do that? There's hundreds of solutions. And I tell people this very same answer. So um, everybody who's in development knows a product called Jira. It's the biggest one on the market. It's been around for 20 years. You know, it used to be a godsend about 20 years ago. Not so much anymore. Um, But when you look at the field of alternatives, there's really not much out there. Everybody else is sort of a clone or tries to be a clone. A little bit better user experience, but not anything drastically different. Sort of, uh, uh, you know, you take a look at one, you take a look at the other. You can actually compare the features. They're almost identical. The problem is that... um, it still doesn't solve the problems in development. This, the, the issues still exist. You know, why do we need to reconfigure all the teams to run uh, their own independent development cycles when you have multiple teams on the same project? Can't we have a simple process of um, delivering um, the structure for development across the entire project? And that's sort of the problem we solve. But I, I, I started with this a little bit uh, backwards. 
Um, I was an engineer for about 25 years and went into startups. And I started to encounter problems with uh, delivery. I'm uh, selling things. Then I come back and tell teams, hey, listen, here's what we need to deliver. Agile process and all. Then I come back to them and the teams are like, hey, Alex, we're not going to get this done. I go, whoa, 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 why, why not? The answer I get usually is like, well, you know, it's, it's going to take us longer. And my frustration was always in, uh, why didn't you guys raise your hand earlier to tell me um, that you're running into potential issues or just flag the fact that we were at risk? And um, most of the time, people are afraid of saying that. And what, where I started Project Simple is building the AI that would alert, alert me if we're um, going to slide off schedule. Okay. So, so that's kind of how we started. But then what happened is I needed the data. And I scanned a lot of the data from other project management tools. And I found that because all teams are exercising their development process differently, even for multi-project teams, uh, I'm sorry, multi-team projects, it's hard to interpret the data so that, so that it can be structured in a way um, to compare apples with apples and oranges with oranges. And to fix that, I needed to standardize the process. So this was kind of the, the solution to say, hey, if we're going to generate the data and we're going to create it ourselves by having our own tools, then why don't we fix all of the things that are wrong with solutions such as Jira or others? And uh, we've been working on it for a few years now. Uh, we're getting excellent reviews. Uh, people are really surprised that you could really make things simple. And this is kind of where we are. And actually, the name came out of the feedback. Yeah, <laughs> I like the name. As it may be. So, so you started out with, you mentioned trying to identify projects that are over schedule, right? Like, is that in that what you said earlier? Um, well, so we started out by trying to build the AI that would predict if somebody's running late, running behind uh, if schedule. you're not going to get things done by the deadline. And the fact that it's AI, it's not attached to any emotions. So the problem of reporting and raising hand or flag, hey, we need help, just is no longer uh, a challenge uh, because there's no emotions attached to it. It's just a, it's just a flag. Hey, maybe something somebody needs to take a look at it. We might be sliding off schedule. Well, I think everyone universally has this problem that projects don't get completed as fast as they want to. They always take longer than you expect. So how do you, how do you build that into your software to actually identify that that's, that's happening? Um, so good question. We've developed a very unique uh, prescriptive process to Agile which actually follows the principles of flow, lean, and XP. So we do have the uh, Scrum and Scrum Band implementations, but altogether, the way that we follow that process makes it easy to see where the team is. And then also we decided that we were going to combine it so that we can foster one product backlog for multiple teams. And then by accident, actually, it, we saw that the picture of uh, teams working and developing just started to flow into very easy 
projections of timelines and our ability to detect risks. And um, so it, it, was, it was a vision from the beginning, but it played out kind of with a unique process. Prescriptive is another word for limiting. So yes, we do not do configurations. We do not have the quote-unquote Salesforce of project management like Jira, but I think that's not necessary at all. So people use those things um, because they're trying to get something else done. So it's kind of, if you need a custom field, somebody's going to implement a custom field. But in development process, you actually don't need that. That's reporting, and it's totally different. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems with Jira 15, 20 years ago when it first came out is people definitely customized the hell out of it and you know made it super crazy complicated with workflows and custom fields and all of that and really turned it into a nightmare. And maybe, I don't know about other companies, but I think over time we all realized like it doesn't have to be that complicated or Jira just standardized more of the things. Like to your point, like the process of how people do this these days is pretty standardized. Like why would you add a bunch of junk you don't need? It's pretty well well defined for ninety percent of people. the The other challenge is when you give people the ability to configure things, they will they will configure it in the way that's not intended. Yeah, right. For sure. So people say, "Hey, we want to be agile," but then they would go ahead and implement some some silly process that's not allowing people to change statuses. <laughs> well, and that's right. And, and- and so that's part of your advantage too, where Jira over time is trying to go to other verticals and do other things, right? They're trying to expand to do project management for all sorts of things, not just IT, where eventually they create a project that is, or a product country that's too generic, right? That isn't as specialized um, for the niche. And, you know, you're where you're coming in, you're like, look, we're trying to build the very best project management software only for this one thing with all the best practices. And it's a very opinionated software, right? Your software is very opinionated to some degree about this is how you should create software and manage these projects. And as long as people buy into that, it's a perfect tool. Is well, that a fair statement? Yes. I mean, just like I said in the beginning, it's not a one size fits all. It's going to, you know, like it may not be a fit for all of the teams. But what we, the problems we wanted to solve are, um, you know, tenfold, right? Uh, so the number one is multi-team, right? There are projects that are multi-team. Each team does its own process. You can't see across of them. This is the principle of agile scalability. It needs to be built in with that in mind. You know, in Jira, if you have one team and another team on the same project, they have their own individual workspaces and you can't do product visibility. Because you can't do product visibility, people pipe by product tools, product boards, and et cetera, solutions because they need strategic thinking. So in right? so one, one second. So in Jira, you're really referring to them having more than one project, right? As, well, as, as more they, than one team? Yeah, they, they have this, uh, this setting where uh, each team is associated with one kind of project. Yeah. Uh, it's not a multi-team pro- project uh, setup. Uh, I definitely and, agree. That's hard. That's hard when you've got a lot of developers and you kind of would like to have more projects, but that makes it all more siloed and isolated and harder to manage. Exactly. And it's it's not easy to fix. If you've been around for 20 years, imagine how much data they have. So if you were going to refactor it to support this, you might as well write out a new product. I mean, uh, it, it's a it's a very complicated 
architectural solution to try to do that at the Jira level right now, 20 years later with 80,000 customers or however they claim. So I, I'd probably say that this is, this is the biggest uh, issue uh, in managing larger projects. But for smaller teams, um, you need to have none of, no, no configuration. You need to have clear visibility. Hey, what are my bugs? What are my support cases? What's my backlog? And have the ability to drive a metrics-driven approach to development, right? In Jira, you have to read everything to understand where are you right now? I wanted to build a system where you don't have to read anything. You just glance at it. And there's quick indicators that you can that you could tell if you need to take a look at something or not. Well, you gave me a demo a little, you know, a few weeks ago or a few months ago when we first talked. And I was super impressed with the tool. Honestly, I, I was. I was super, super impressed. But I feel like I have the same problem that a lot of other people have that you talk to. It's like, how do you then convince them to switch, right? Like, I'm still using Jira. I haven't switched. How do you... That's That's got to be like the, the holy grail problem for you as a company is, right? Like, how do you... And, you know, you got to have enough to entice people to switch, right? The switching costs... I don't want to say the switching costs are high for this because it's not like you're changing accounting systems or phone systems or some other things which are have a much higher switching cost, cost than this does. But it's still disruptive, right? Like, people don't want to make the change. So... I'm curious, how, how have you, have you figured out how to crack that? Because I feel like that is going to be one of your biggest challenges. So very good question. And the answer is yes, absolutely. So um, uh, number one, you don't actually need to, um, to switch. What you could do is you could just stop one day by using, um, you know, Jira for your next sprint. You can copy only the backlog items for your next sprint and just start, right? Is there that's an import? There is, but I'll, 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 I'll talk about it a little bit later. But that's one way to start, sort of the manual way, right? So if you have a small team, you don't really care about historical data, you can do it that way and it takes no effort, right? Most of the time, uh, the backlogs are bloated. They have things in there that they should never have. Nobody it's the list of shit you're never going to do. Exactly. So starting over is actually a great, a great way to yes. get, get rid of that dead weight. The other way, and it's something that we're releasing soon, is the ability to sign up and import your entire team, your entire backlog, and do the bi-directional sync. Wow. Yes. So uh, again, this is uh, maybe a, a news too soon, uh, but we're coming out with it shortly. And, um, you know, lots of teams have asked for it. That's why we jumped on it, number one. Uh, but we're always looking at things that will make it easier. Um, well, the, go ahead. The, the switching part of it is the hard part, right? Like, you know, and, and this isn't just for you. It's for any entrepreneur that's listening, right? When you're trying to sell your product to somebody else, it's one thing to convince them that you have a better mousetrap, you've built a better product. But then actually getting people to switch is really difficult because... It can't just be like marginally better, right? If you call me and be like, oh, I can save you $20 a month. I'd be like, it ain't worth my effort to save the $20 a month. Like, forget that, right? Like, it's got to be a huge advantage. Like, it's got to be 10x better or, or something to, to get me to do the switch. But the easier you can make it to switch, right? Then, then it's less risk for me to say, you know what? If all I have to do is click the import button, all my junk shows up in there, and then I can kind of play with it. 
and there's less risk and less time for me to make the change, then I think that dramatically reduces that you know, barrier to get people to make the switch. We do it even better. Uh, the next phase, once we release the import, when you bring it in, when you import all of your backlog, we will actually show you all of your team's dysfunction in the past three months. We'll oh, no. Backlog, and we'll tell you how to make it better. I don't know if I want to see that. That sounds like Schrodinger's, Schrodinger's cat. Like, is the cat alive or dead in the box kind of thing? Like, I don't even know if I want to know. Well, you know, to be honest, I mean, that's, that's the power of AI, right? We got to use it. We can crunch. We can detect a lot of things. And... Um, it's awesome that way because so far, everything that we've done, we've mostly done by human analysis, you know, even, even to the point of comparing cycle times, right, on tasks being completed. People will do it by hand looking at a JIRA report every sprint, but they won't compare trending or they'll have to import it into Excel sheets. Why are we still doing it in the archaic way? I don't know. Well, I'm I'm honestly still excited to try this. I think there could be a uh, big value for it for my startup. I mean, obviously at full scale, we do work for dozens of companies. If anybody's listening, you can check us out, fullscale.io. Um, I think it'd be you know really useful for all of our our customers, right? Like, you know, how how do we how do we take a product like yours and recommend it to our customers if it works well, works well for us. So I'm excited to to play with it some more. Um, there was one of the things I really liked about your product was the, I think you mentioned this was a, a kind of a feature sort of uh, thing that people did in XP, which was tracking how many hours were left, like for each of the components to complete. And that was the, like, that was the main take, like takeaway. I think when you show me the demo that that was really cool. Like if everybody at the end of the day would update, like how many hours they have left for each component, that would be really helpful to kind of you know, every day you have this kind of built into the software of knowing where we're at and you could assign them to all different people. That was the thing I really liked because in Jira, it's a huge nightmare to create subtasks for all the stuff and try and track all the subtasks. I don't feel like it's very user-friendly, but I think in your, in your product, it was like dead simple to do. So uh, thank you, Matt. Um, for anybody watching, I think Matt is referring to uh, two things one is called value-based stream uh, versus work-based stream. So Jira is very work-based stream-centric, meaning you can have uh, a backlog item, let's say a story, and if you find a bug, that's a separate backlog item that's created. And sometimes people, what they do is they decompose the story in such a way that you have a front-end story, back-end story, integration yeah. story, bug story, and that that's sucks. called, yeah, that's called work-based stream, meaning you celebrate the ability of getting one of those done, but there is no value until all of those things are completed. That's so, a pain as a project management, because I want to create like the front-end work and the back-end work and all of that crap. Like that's a pain. That's why we created the word done-done, right? How do you get to done-done? Like it's now no longer yeah. one-done, it's now done-done, yeah. right? Um, the value stream is sort of different. You basically co combine all of the work together and uh, break it down into tasks. And only when all the tasks are completed, the value is created. So you basically get the entire feature delivered 
um, in, 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 a, in a section and you're not getting credit until everything is completed. So you're really getting to the, to the um, outcome versus output. And um, the other thing is the XP principle of time left is crucial. Uh, we're kind of opening up a Pandora box here, but the, the Agile community is so divided on the estimation, the estimation techniques, uh, the methodologies, the way people try to um, explain um, where they are and what's left. And, um, you know, there's the no estimates approach. There is the story points. There's the hour estimations. There's days. I mean, teams do a lot of different things. There is no really standard approach. But what worked for me year after, years after years is the time left. Just basically tracking where they are because that principle, it works as an indicator when I actually know when the handoff is going to be to the next person. And the entire team does too because the concept of in progress is non-deterministic. And that creates a whole lot of challenges with delays, uh, with micromanagement, and it's something that we can fix. Well, I really love that feature. And honestly, I think about it all the time because I'm thinking about with our 250 software developers that work at full scale. I'm like, man, should I ask all of them to do this sort of time-based every day? Like, is that a way that we could help track productivity across all of our, you know, all of our employees, at least to some have some sense of like, what are they doing? And are they making progress on those on those items, you know? I wouldn't necessarily measure the productivity of it, but what I would do is I would definitely have the ability to um, uh, track the handoff, right? Because if you know that somebody has just a few hours left on the task, you know they're going to get something done today. So it's a trigger but to if they me. Didn't, but if they didn't, it starts to raise a red flag. If they do not, if it's something like in progress and somebody says, hey, I'm probably going to get it done today and they don't, you're going to find out about it in the tomorrow standup. So you've just burned a day but I, for something but my that, problem that should is, have been simple. My problem is I have 250 employees. I'm not in all the standups, right? So that, that's one of the challenges I have is, you know, thinking, we, so we ask all of our employees to do like a daily status report. So they all send a daily status report every single day. But I thought about adding that number of hours left across all of them. Like if all of them would would send that to us, then maybe that could help us do some kind of reporting. But I haven't I haven't tried it yet. Um, I'm not really a big fan of reports. Uh, I think that's a little bit more of uh, traditional management, right? I want uh, team teams to self manage, uh, mm -hmm. and I want to give them the tools that they could see visibility across their team. Yeah. And for me, as somebody that's uh, managing a lot of teams, what I want to do is I want to have uh, a dashboard that I can glance to understand, yeah. are they making progress? Are they stuck? And how can I help? I yep. don't want people to be defensive because reporting, usually people are trying to defend. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we don't call status, right? Status is kind of a negative word. We basically say, right, sure. you know, uh, daily stand up, right? Or, or something that's a little bit more versatile. Um, but um, it's, a, it's sort of a different management technique. And that's why I'm, uh, uh, I'm more interested in metrics-driven development, kind of DevOps. Right. In DevOps, you're looking at inputs and outputs, and you're looking at you know, different values 
and you can compare and contrast. You could see what's the weakest link. You could see what are the most important things. We can actually help do that in development. And um, that process helps expose those, um, those challenges. So I have in my notes here that you wrote an article about tech debt, and you said that Agile is one of the reasons we have so much tech debt. <laughs> um, yes, uh, we do. Um, uh, which, which part was interesting for you? Well, I didn't read the article myself. Just I just was in my notes here, and I was just curious what your take is on technical debt because I think everybody's definition of technical debt, I feel like, is a little different. So um, I think the problem is with uh, just the way that people manage tech debt. Uh, product managers generally um, celebrating uh, their accomplishments when, by delivering features. And tech debt is the, the, the non-glamorous part of uh, development. So a lot of times, if you're constantly going for delivering of new user-based uh, capabilities, you're building up and accruing technical debt. Um, what we've done with a couple teams is we've actually mapped out that the more features are being developed, the more technical debt is being created. However, the discipline for going back and closing tech debt items is something that most teams do not have. And um, because of that, the tech debt accrues until you reach a, a stalemate and um, you have to do something about it. So I think the agility is responsible for it in a way because of the fast pace. If you slow the pace down and you need to have the discipline of slowing the pace down, then, um, then you, can, you can have a better control over it. But again, because the tools do not have a clear visualization, it's very easy for the tech debt items to fall down to the bottom of the backlog where nobody really cares. Yeah, but I don't, I, I don't believe that in every software project that you do, that technical debt gets created as a byproduct of every sprint to release. Depends on, depends on what you're doing, right? I mean, I would call them technical assets, not a technical <laughs> debt, right? Like not everything is a debt. Like, Unless your developers are absolutely horrible and they just create garbage every single release, right? Like you should be building assets every release. So good point. Um, this is where we have to talk about, you know, architecture a little bit, right? Um, do you start a project with a perfect architecture or do you start no. a project with the feature? So the way I always was taught is you build software and architecture is a byproduct of your decisions. So you build functionality and then you refactor it when uh, you encounter that you need to cover more and more. So you get architecture in the end. You don't get architectures up front uh, unless you're building something very, very specific where architecture is uh, critical. And... Um, if you follow that, that, that approach, then all the time you're going to need to refactor, all the time you need to go back. And it's it really the tech debt is the discipline of going back to make things uh, the way that they should be in the perfect world. But I agree, not every technical debt needs to be repaid. Some well, of it and we, you, you, could, you could live with, and, and it's up to prioritization. So here's another analogy to something that I'm, I'm dealing with right now. So at full scale, 
in a totally different thing, in a different analogy, okay? We have 700 blog posts on fullscale.io. If you want to, if you want to need, if you have problems sleeping tonight, you can go to our blog and read all 700 of them. A lot of them need a lot of updates. They're not as optimized for SEO. They're like, they need updates. Are they all technical debt? Do I have to go back and rewrite all of those articles? Do I have to update them? I don't have to. I could just consider them assets and leave them alone. Or on the, you know, glass half empty side, you say, oh, no, they're all technical debt. You have to go update every one of those blog posts to make them perfect. Right? Like, I feel like in so much, you know, in, in that example, but also in a lot of software development, there's always two sides to that, right? Like, you can always look at everything kind of like glass half full of like, no, we have to go do this. We have to go improve this. We have to do that. Versus you're like, you know what? It works. Whatever. Like, and I think the answer is, a, is, is in the middle somewhere. Right. But I feel like too many people look at it like, no, you, I, you would have to go fix all of those blog posts. We have to go fix every one of them. And I'm like, no, I don't have to. So, so again, it's, it's the problem of prioritization. If you have a challenge, yeah. um, you have to fix it, but you have to understand the value. Right. So usually it doesn't become a tech, tech debt just because somebody likes uh, a better styling, for example. Right. That's no, the value. developers do. The developers do. Well, they do, but they don't they, think you know, strategically about it. They're like, I just want to go fix this code. Just like my content writers are like, well, I need to go update the uh, article so the SEO score is 80 because I want to make it be 80 out of 100. Well, you, but, you have to. You have to review it, right? So somebody has to go in and review. Hey, here's a here's a recommendation by an engineer. Do we want to take it or not? I always tell my teams uh, this one thing. I, I tell them, hey, it's not always a no. It it's just not now, yeah. right? And then and then some. It may not ever become uh, important. There were so many user stories that I once had that we were going to uh, refactor. Uh, and then what happened is we developed something new and it became obsolete. That yeah. happens also. So um, I think there's a there's a standing joke, right? How do you how do you tell a, a senior engineer from a junior engineer? You know, when the uh, when a manager comes to a junior engineer, they start working on the, on the task right away. A senior engineer waits at least a day. Why? Because because things may totally change in a day. Right. So um, <laughs> right? it may not be it may not be actual anymore. Um, but I think prioritization remains one of the biggest challenges. I love how do that, you know that, what's, uh, how do you know what's a value? Well, and so that was the argument I had with my director of marketing back to the content thing. I'm like, I don't want to spend a bunch of time updating these old articles that may be bad content, bad topics, bad quality. Like we don't even care about this stuff anymore versus writing new content that is really, really valuable, right? Like using this analogy, it's the same sort of struggle of like, I want to prioritize new content, the higher quality on the right topics and just kind of ignore all the old stuff that, that might be dead weight, right? Like I don't want to spend weeks trying to clean up the junk that it's there. It's not hurting anything. And I feel like it's a good analogy to some code. Like the code's out there, it works. Maybe maybe it could be better. It could be in a new framework. It could be these things, but it just works. I feel like that's what a lot of technical debt is. Well, let's think about it differently, though. Let's think about it in terms of costs, right? So imagine your marketing director uh, can invest additional funding into writing new posts, needs to uh, first create the content. Maybe AI can help to make it quicker and better. I don't know. Uh, up to you how you guys do it. 
then somebody needs to distribute it. Uh, then uh, you have to do some SEO anyway. Then you have to do some analysis. But you're doing it out of the out of the box. You you don't have no metrics to say if it's powerful or not, right? But meanwhile, yeah. you have 700 articles. So maybe you throw away the bottom performers and you don't really care about them, but you grab the sweet middle or maybe the top ones. And you say, you know what? We're going to recycle these. Yeah. We're going to take them for a spin. And what we're going to do is we just have to change it up just a little bit. Maybe, maybe something is still relevant, something is not. We're gonna get, here's the metrics that we have on previous campaigns. These have been generating the biggest amount of clicks. So now let's recycle them and make them even better. Right? Yeah. And if you do it that way, that still means that you're not throwing that away. So you're still addressing sort of tech debt. But I wouldn't call it tech debt. I would call it a next iteration, right? Because at that point, it's no longer debt. It's now, you're now iterating to improve it. Because it was an asset. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it was an asset. It was never debt. It was an asset that just needed some love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A button that didn't work right. Uh, uh, correctly, but did things incorrectly could actually be helpful. <laughs> yeah, you know that's the thing about software. Um, there's there's no final version, right? Like it, it's like fashion. There's no final version. It just continues to change and evolve, and especially in most businesses, right? It's like never ending. And um, you know, even at at full scale, we have our own internal software that we've built and. You know, I'm looking at part of it, thinking about throwing it all away and buying some other third-party product. It's like obsolete, all this like years of work out, right? And just buy some other product off the shelf. So it's like, I don't have to build, you know, custom build it and support this thing anymore, you know? And that, to, to, to your joke earlier, right? It's like, it's all technical debt until you wait long enough that it's obsolete, <laughs> Yeah, the lifetime cost of ownership is is very important, right? So if you're if you're building something and you're maintaining it for your for your own self, well, you're gonna have to keep the team, you're gonna have to support it, you're gonna have to you know manage it. You have you have to have somebody that's constantly thinking about it, feedback loops and all that. So yeah, it's a it's a long term investment. But uh, I have um, I have a different analogy about software. It comes from my dad. My dad told me this about about uh, working on my first house when I got it. He said, Alex, uh, you can never finish remodeling. You can only stop. Software goes the same route. I love that. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> well, I really appreciate having you on the show today. And I think at, at full scale, I'm really excited to try your product. And I, and I sincerely mean that. And hopefully it's something that we can recommend to our other clients. You know, we have over 50 clients that we do work with um, building all sorts of, of software for our customers. You can check us out at fullscale.io and your company is at projectsimple.ai, right? And this is Alex Polykov. Really, really appreciate you being on the show today. Um, as I end the show, I always like to ask if you have any last like words of wisdom for other entrepreneurs out there. Oh God. Um, regarding what topic <laughs> it could be anything maybe it's uh managing software projects but anything um entrepreneurs okay so uh start small start small in one step at a time right don't boil the ocean i think uh i think that's something that's probably the biggest uh the biggest problem for a lot of early entrepreneurs they want to build something huge just start small, 
start small, put it in the hands of a customers or users, you may be pleasantly surprised that they take you in the direction of pains that you've never thought about. Uh, but as soon as you can give it to the hands of the customers, you'll make a better product. I know we did, and it worked for us. Um, we obviously have a lot of domain experience too, but you know, just try to avoid building something uh, that has no proof. Uh, just get proof as soon as, as soon as possible and smallest steps. Great advice. All right. Once again, this was Alex Polykov. I um, mean, check him out at projectsimple.ai. If you're building software and you want to try something better or different than Jira, definitely check him out. Um, I was super impressed by the demo and I sincerely mean that and uh, looking forward to trying it myself. So thank you so much for being on the show today, Alex. Thanks for having me, Matt. All right. Take care. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.